0: Welcome back! Thank you once again for hanging out with us. This is the IT in the D show. I'm your host Bob Walton Spiel. Always hanging out with producer co-host extraordinaire Randy Walker. Guest this week. This is going to be a fun one. Scott Smith's in the house talking all things Gen AI. This is our first time ever uh, diving deep into this, and Scott is, in my opinion, the leading expert in this town or in the Midwest. Or let's go U.S. Let's just let's just open the open it up. One of the leading experts in Gen AI, and we're going to get into the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, but hey, you can find us. on online it in the d.com do us a favor give us a like on the social subscribe to us everywhere find podcasts are sold don't forget meetup.com slash it in the d we just wrapped up our three part series at nancy whiskey's we finally got a nice day a nice night on the patio and uh, one out of three wasn't bad. one out of three yeah we actually got to sit out in the patio but we are moving uh venues uh randy you want to tell everybody uh where we're going to be yeah, on Thursday, the 19th of October, we will be at Eastern Palace Club in Hazel Park on John R., just south of uh, the 75 service ramp. It's a great little, it's a great, actually, it's a big place. Uh, we should have tons of room, uh, no speakers, no cover, just a bunch of IT folks hanging out and maybe have a couple tiki drinks like Randy likes to drink. Uh, but hey, Scott, <laughs> how they treating you from uh, beautiful uh, Benton Harbor? Uh, it's fantastic uh, this is the
1: probably the maybe the third time I've made it to the west side of the state without stopping uh, my way to Chicago uh, I made it just before the sunset so it was nice uh, yeah it's been a it's been a good couple of hours since I made it over here I was stuck in Jackson uh, well I stucks a strong word but I was in I was in Jackson for a couple of hours meeting with some clients uh, about generative AI actually
0: um, did some work and and made the trip over so it's been a it's been a long but good Monday so I'm gonna dive in rip the band-aid off um, Sure. Gen AI has become the. Uh, so, the old days, I've been, obviously, I've been around a lot and it says, you know, my CIOs read something in CIO magazine on a plane that we need to be in the cloud. And then it yeah. turned into, uh, we've seen this on our show, like, di- you know, digital transformation. And then you can book a meeting saying digital transformation. What does that mean? We don't know. Um, and now it's been, you know, then it became blockchain and that went away really fast. Um, and now it's Gen AI. But I think, there there i can see that the light at the end of this tunnel and it's not the train coming to get us it's actually an opening so <laughs> there's there's definitely some practical applications but what's your take on this this has come at us very fast very like since you know chat gpt started in what november um and it just kind of got into business applications around three months ago i mean this thing's how are you staying ahead of this the fastest moving train i think we've seen in the last 15 years in this industry
1: yeah, it's it's been a very interesting couple of months to say the least. Yeah, November will pretty much come up on a year of of ChatGPT being released, um, and the groundswell of of interest was pretty remarkable. Uh, I mean, as someone who's been working in data analytics and data science and different areas of strategy around analytics for the better part of ten years, uh, you know, we've been trying to talk about data science with business stakeholders for a long time and gain that uh, that interest and get folks wanting to talk about the power of data science and talking about get quality data governance, talking about managing your information effectively, aligning your, your data strategy with your business strategy. And there's oftentimes a lot of challenges there. And what, what generative AI has provided is an experiential opportunity for non-technical folks, and even a lot of technical folks, their first introduction to what artificial intelligence can do for a knowledge worker, really for the typical person, so being able to go into ChatGPT, being able to go onto Anthropic, uh, your you know name your name your LLM of choice, and just type in something and interact with it, type in text and get text, type in text and get a photo or get an image, uh, has made it very easy for folks to understand the transformative capabilities of it in a way that I think other technology advancements like cloud was difficult for people to truly understand. You start running into this cost to cost uh, scenario of prem versus on prem, there's all these different pieces. But when you look at generative AI, it's very simple. It's, I wanna know the summarization of this information, give it back to me. And so it's really practical how you can use this in a way that I think it just wasn't before. Uh, You know, All AI really is, if you were to break it down, is the process of getting computer systems to perform tasks typically performed by humans. And generative AI is just an extension of that, in which it can generate text, images, and other digital assets from text or voice, and which is ultimately text. And this experiential quality that came out with with just made that fundamental value so much more evident. And and I, I think it's a little bit more than just uh you know just the hype. You know, in the in the conversation that I had today at one of our clients, uh, or I guess one of my clients, uh, they. They mentioned, well, isn't this kind of remind me of blockchain? People came into me and into my office and were saying, everything is blockchain. Everything can be fixed by blockchain. And her response was, well, this is, you know, I already have things that solve this. Why, why would I need blockchain? And they asked the same thing about, about generative AI. And what we were starting to, to talk about is that when you look at the end-to-end experience that someone might be having, generative AI and, and other AI approaches can serve as this automation tool for what humans don't need to be doing anymore. And when we look at the overall capacity that people have to do their job, most people are working well beyond hundred percent, particularly in the, in the folks when we talk to uh, folks who are working in these really data manual uh, jobs and experiences, they might be working 150 to 180% of their capacity because the, the workload that they're tasked with doing far out, out exceeds the technological capability that they have access to, and so things like generative AI and other AI tools provides an opportunity to automate those tasks, bring their down, you know, their normal capacity back down to 100 because all these tasks can now be more efficiently um, automated. So I do think it's a little bit more. I think there's a lot of value here. I still think it's very early, uh, but I think the promise of produ- providing just massive productivity gains is is fairly well documented even now, even even just a year in.
0: Everybody was super worried, or at least they're coming to me with, you know, it's coming for our jobs. And I'll take a huge mother, may I step back where, you know, 15 years ago, I met Hewlett Packard and they're preaching that 80% of the workers are in maintenance mode. um, 20% are in innovation or I'm sorry, 80% of the tasks throughout a day is in maintenance. 20 is in innovation. Fast forward a little bit and I got into the machine learning world and I was working for a security data security company. They were professing the same thing 80 percent is maintenance mm-hmm. why are you looking at raw logs why don't you have this machine learning tool build the puzzle of find the weird and now fast forward another eight years and we're in the same mode where all we're talking about is you know the lack of innovation i'm i'm wondering is this going to finally be the silver bullet because the, the story keeps saying staying the same from at least, it's been at least 16 17 years for me where <laughs> um you know is it is is Gen AI finally that silver bullet
1: In some contexts, probably yes. Uh, okay. so, so, so something that I, I, I will jokingly talk about with in, in these conversations is that when you're working with a generative AI model, the output is probably true. And the reason why it's probably true is because the model is trying to predict what it thinks the logical response would be to the question that it was asked based upon the entirety of the information it was trained upon. And the reason why I I reference or I frame it in that way is there are a lot of applications and automation tasks in which having an answer that is probably true is good enough. If you're talking about heart surgery or life and death situations, you don't want a probably true answer. But if you're doing initial approaches for drafting materials or you're looking to create a lot of these things within the productivity space that can allow some reasonable draft and rewrites and edits and what we call human-in-the-loop capacity, then it's okay to be probably true. And to be fair, all models that are based, all machine learning models are realistically probably true predictions. Most human beings, when they give a response, are probably true. There's very few things in life that are completely accurate. And so I think if we can identify where there are opportunities where having really, really good, thoughtful answers and that can eliminate a whole bunch of additional manual labor, but still, and gets us very close to that answer. Then, yeah, I think we can find some pretty good applications. Now, as these LLMs, these large language models, get more and more precise, and they get, long, you know, more and more optimized to be able to compute at less at less cost um, and less energy and power and we start finding more and more applications of them and we start reducing the error, then yeah, I think we can get to these more critical use cases. But right now in instances where a probably true answer is, is sufficient, um, then I think there's plenty of opportunity for it to be considered a silver
0: bullet. So you want to laugh, Randy, this is good. I, I just, while Scott was answering, I, I typed in the chat GPT, um, give me 10, give me questions to ask a, a Gen AI expert uh, on a <laughs> podcast. And it actually, it um, meta there. it's introduction of background, understanding it, um, ethical and social implications. Then, yeah, a whole bunch of questions. I won't ask them, but I just thought it was funny <laughs> because we were talking about this pre-show and it says what ethical considerations should be taken into account when developing AGI and how can we ensure it's responsible use? And I'm like, we were just talking about that. It's a fantastic question. So let's mm-hmm. get into governance. If anybody has a general idea of what AI is, it just digests everything and spits out a logical response, right? What happens if, you know, we always joke that if it gets a hold of Reddit or if it gets a hold of um, garbage, like, you know, I don't consider all of Reddit garbage, but for the most part, anything, any anonymous forum, you're going to get garbage. Yeah. So how do we ensure like, and I also know that we've taken like instruction manuals and digitized it and put it, dropped it into a, a model. Where yep. where it's a closed model, but for things that are open, how do you, in terms of governance, like I don't want to say protect, but like filter out what pe- most people would think is garbage.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's there's two good examples of of how organizations have taken on the task of of managing and governing these models. Uh, Microsoft's Responsible AI initiative that started probably eight, maybe nine years ago. Uh, as well, I think has a pretty good definition of, of how you should approach AI. And that was even before generative AI, generative AI came out. Uh, but they've been managing that for a long period of time at this point. And as generative AI came out, they also released and revised their own approaches. One of the biggest things that they talk about is, is having a human in the loop, having someone who is is analyzing those responses during the processes of training either the large language model, which creates the foundational models, which are basically the models that everyone is using right now, like OpenAI. Uh, So when you're training the model, you need to have a human in the loop. You need to build out these prompts that you can make sure that the answers that you are are getting back kind of align to some type of set of standards or practices. And then post-training, when they're actually out in the wild and people are using them uh, through APIs like OpenAI or Microsoft's OpenAI, uh, there's also another range in which you can continue to add human to loop as you're integrating into your processes. So Microsoft's done a great job of doing that in their uh, in supporting in, in OpenAI when they're building out their uh, training their initial models. Another organization called Anthropic, uh, which is was founded by some folks from OpenAI originally, uh, they built out something in Claude 2 and they they framed it around constitutional AI. So through their their training of their own model, they tested. The way in which the model would respond to questions against a set of safeguards that they believe that a model should never uh, go against, and so kind of like if the Robocops,
0: kind of like the RoboCop roles. Like these are three yeah. directives, you know.
1: Yeah, actually, no, that's that's one hundred percent perfectly aligned right. to the, this idea. Is is in the in the basis training environment of these models? How do we make sure that they align to some type of ethical standard? That's the that's the baseline, in my opinion. That it, it's really on the company producing that model to follow. And I think the government has also been a little bit behind, but trying to catch up. The White House has released their own standards that are largely uh, reinforced by companies like AWS, Anthropic, Microsoft, and Google. Um, but So that's important from the, from the training perspective. I also think organizations that are looking to take these models and apply it to their own data have to be really thoughtful because the question about garbage in garbage out, unless you're gonna create your own foundational model uh, which would be extremely cost prohibitive at this point, you're going to be using a foundational model from one of these companies. So you kind of have to assume and, and hope that they're finding they're following some type of ethical principle. But there's nothing inherently wrong about the model. It's how you allow certain questions, in my opinion, to be asked of the model. And so what we'll do with, for instance, when we're taking something like OpenAI, we will take a collection of information from a client that they want to make searchable. And in the process of of creating an uh, an interface between their data and referencing that foundational model, you can do something called prompt engineering, which allows you to apply a set of context parameters for how that model is supposed to be used to answer your question. So you can add security and governance at the foundational model level if you're AWS, Microsoft, Google, Anthropic, all those big players. You can also add governance and, and regulation at your, uh, at your own context window as well by saying, I only want my, uh, my, my model responses to fall within these parameters. And some of the th- basic things that you can have it do is say, don't make stuff up. Uh, probably one of the funniest things that I've experienced is I was working on a, a presentation and I wanted to get a first draft of what I thought my key point should be. And I said, I'm going to give a presentation about these things. These executives are going to be there. Uh, I'm really looking for some stats and, and figures around generative AI to share. And I, I submitted that, I, I got about 700, page, 700 words back as my as response, it was well formatted as a, as a nice speech. I go to read it and I get a couple of, you know, into the into the data key points pieces and it says something around how the adoption rate of generative AI has been X, Y, and Z. And I said, oh, this is from Forbes, this is, seems credible. Uh, and then I noticed though that the reference is 2017. Uh. So it's clearly impossible that that could have come out in 2017 from Forbes. And so I responded back to the model and said, okay, hey, this is a great reference. Give me the citation or give me some more from that article. And it says, oh, I just made that up. Sorry. Uh, I thought you just wanted a really good answer. And, and, that, and what, what ended up happening is that the model wants to do the right thing. It wants to give you back the right answer. It's just fooling. Well, it's just I, fooling
0: us until it turns evil. Let's yeah. be honest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, because what? Because your point. We we didn't frame. I didn't frame the question appropriately by saying only give me things that have a that you can cite, or only give me this. And so, it's really important to think when you're working with these models that it's going to only its its ability is going to be bounded by the parameters that you give it to work within. And that's also going to improve your precision and also eliminate something that we call hallucinations, which is when the model provides back
0: incorrectly, sometimes wildly incorrect or sometimes incorrect. So that was going to be my next question was to talk about hallucinations. Funny you bring that (laughs) up. you know, great segue. Um, Has I don't know this answer. I haven't looked into it deeply enough, but you kind of hinted to it by saying it wanted to do the right thing. But where does, you know, where does some of this stuff come from? Because some of the times it's just it's literally pure gibberish. And is it, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me, but like, do you, do you you know, or is it just, it's still in the ether? So if you go back to how the
1: models were trained, there's a, I believe it's open or open AI's model was trained on two different documents, which was, I think it was something called book one and book two. And book one is fairly defined at, these are like public open source information that, 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 I'm not, I'm not sure the right legal term for it, but it's basically anyone can use this information for whatever purposes. And then book two is about 85% publicly available information and some percentage of, we don't really know what's in there. <laughs> and so the way that the model was trained is to start learning that when certain words are provided in a sequence, the probability that the next word is going to be a certain word. And that's why I say that the answer is probably true. So based upon how all the model has read across the internet, Wikipedia information, that's a bit freely available online, sometimes maybe Reddit. It's seen a certain range. It's seen a certain sequencing of words. And so it's trying to replicate that pattern. And so when you're talking about hallucinations there's a little bit of an issue where it's probably trying to reconcile the way in which it's seen certain sequences play out. And that's really where I think a lot of these challenges come from is when just like weird answers might come back to it. And I also think that there, so there's that piece where I think it's trying to reconcile the, the probability of certain sequences happening based upon the vast amount of training data it's had. And then the second element is, I don't know that we've properly defined how we want it to think. And I'm putting that in quotes because it's not necessarily thinking. And a good example would be is if you create a brand new OpenAI account and, and don't type in anything in there and just ask a question about, uh, you know, tell me a story about, <laughs> about Ben Harbor and give it no other information, that first prompt, that first question will be very, very different than if I provided it a paragraph of information about what the purpose of that answer would be, who I am, how I'm going to use that information, how I want it to think, what I want it to create. And so the more context that I provide it about the type of answer I want is going to inform the type of answer I get. And so I think we often see greater hallucinations and confusion in our message when we don't provide the model enough context to interpret the question and provide an appropriate response. So that's a huge part of model of, of model tuning right now, is trying to figure out how do we how do we tell the model how to think and what output are we expecting so that it can provide the the, the best possible, most probably true response? Yeah,
0: because I think, Randy, didn't we ask it who I was at one point And it was like some, uh, I forget, yeah, like some, some game award-winning podcaster. Yeah, has <laughs> yeah. been I, trained I put that, well. Right, right, right. I put that output on the that episode. I wrote enough blogs so. where so it finally picked it up. Um, so some of the things that I wanted to bring up was pre-chat GPT, pre-open AI. Mm-hmm. Um, There's all these doomsday stories about AI, whether two of them got together and then created their own language and then shut everybody out and they had to pull the or it became sentient and they had to pull the plug or it got insanely racist or like it, it just took a life of its own. Has I don't want to say it's been thwarted, but has this kind of building a standard that you were talking about, like AWS and Microsoft, is that changing that or is it AI to AI still an unknown and still a kind of a beast.
1: I think that there is so I, I don't I don't have an I would say that that is that is beyond the scope of of the work that and the the exposure that I have, um, admittedly. But I do think the challenge comes down that and so maybe something to remind folks is that AI is in its current state is not going to be able to do all of these type of automation tasks that I think would have to be in place for you to get into a Skynet situation. And the reason why I know that is because so much limitation around the data that it has exposure to the way in which these models are running um, and a few other factors kind of give me some, 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 Area of safety about the type of work uh, and type of challenges that we run into. I, I think the biggest challenge that we're we're going to face with things like generative AI are very similar to challenges that we faced with with AI uh, previously. Is that bias in the training data? And 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 Bob, you mentioned this earlier about what if what if the model is trained on a bunch of terrible stuff? Uh, and not only just terrible stuff that could be posted in Reddit or other type of threads. But just it, it embodies a set of biases uh, and discriminatory information that is then used to make decisions because we just blindly trust the model. And I think we can manage a lot of the challenges that could come from AI and generative AI by reminding, that, reminding ourselves that we have to be very careful and thoughtful about why we're building a model. And just because we can build one doesn't mean that we should. And if we've decided that we should build something, there should be a clear line between what we're doing and the value that we hope to get out of it and the value to either our customers that we're working with or the communities that we're serving. And I don't think anything's changed. And that's another big part of it too, is is when we're giving these presentations and talking with folks about it, all of the same sound development principles of data science, of MLOps, of traditional data analytics, of IT transformation, all these things are still true. The only thing that's changed is one of the tools that we have can generate outputs in a way that it hadn't before. We shouldn't throw out our standards of governance. We shouldn't throw out our considerations of privacy. And if we continue to be really thoughtful about how we maintain privacy and we eliminate bias and reduce discrimi- and, and, and discrimination, then I think we can manage ourselves pretty well. If we get, if we kind of give ourselves into this doomsday fear. I don't know. I I feel like the challenge becomes these organizations like Microsoft, Google, GCP, Anthropic, they have to keep investing into this Uh, because it's it's not not to say that this technology is inevitable, but the potential is so great that not continuing down this path, I think, would be just a huge misstep and what i've seen from these organizations and public news releases whether they're in congress or from their own websites is they are taking it very seriously i think they're being a little hyperbolic for a lot of reasons well there was, uh, a, whole of, there was a whole made, bunch of there's a whole bunch of bad
0: stories like i remember like was it sony cameras like anytime the Asian person would take a picture, would say they're blinking and was like, Oh my God, like just open up these and then facial yep. recognition for uh, people of color that, it, you know, it, like at nighttime and you know what I mean? And there's just these, these, mm-hmm. these like nightmare scenarios. Is that kind of what you're alluding to with the bias thing? I guess what is, yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, ch- so here, here's a, if we take a step back and think about Facebook um, and Cambridge Analytica, I think a lot of the folks that create technology oftentimes live in this very uh, hyper-optimistic world. <clears throat> There's this book that I read, which I remember the, the, the author, but it's called Eat, Pray, Code. And the author goes in to discuss one of the interesting phenomenon around basically the time period of 2010, early 2000s to about 2015, right before COVID or so, because I think the book came out before then, but this idea that Silicon Valley became almost a religion, um, and that folks started believing in the higher power that technology could provide. And a lot of these founders and, and, and tech leaders were seen almost in this uh, kind of messiah-like figures that through the work that we are doing, we will produce, pr- produce nirvana, we will save the world, we will do all of these different things. And then you see over over the last couple of years, all of that falling to nothing, because a lot of those programs, like if you look at, you know, uh, we work and I'm trying to think of the, uh, what was the, the, the blood cure Uh, Theranos. Thank you. Yeah. That whole idea that if we just, if we just will ourselves enough, we can figure this out and we can solve this. And this almost this, this cult of personality that comes around a lot of these, a lot of these tech founders, has created a lot of challenges. And the reason why I bring this up is that's an area of concern for how biases can come in because people will believe that their technology is going to be used for good to the to the higher good that this organization is is creating. And that's that's where some of the concerns come around, where these biases can come from is people are not the the folks who need to be in that room are not in that room oftentimes when these models are being decided or these business practices are being considered. Um, or these business value ideas are being defined. And so I think through just honestly a better approach to inclusion, uh, diversity, and equity in in a lot of our discussions would bring folks who have various different perspectives, who can ask different kinds of questions, who can challenge the data and say, does this really represent uh, the entirety of our population? Can we trust the outputs of this? Um, Can I challenge why we're building this type of model, this way, are important to have in here, and and again, it comes back to the idea of these are all things that should have been true from the beginning. Um, that we can't get caught up into this cult of personality. We can't assume that technology is going to be infinitely um, uh, uh, perfect, and that we have to constantly challenge it and not kind of give into the the hype and, and be mindful that that as we're going from these you know, initial couple of months of, of exploring this technology that we have to maintain our, our vigilance on security, on governance, on privacy protection, uh while continuing to to thoughtfully advance it.
0: I did ask ChatGPT if I uh, they're gonna kill humans, if that's in their <laughs> DNA. And it basically said that it's um there's no credible scientific basis to support the idea. Um, the AI apocalypse is a product of science fiction, but listen, for all of us that have seen the Boston scientific robots, the dogs and whatnot, if you put AI into them and let them go out into the world, I feel that they're going to kill us all. That's just my opinion. It might not be in my lifetime, but they'll, uh, they're going to get angry at one point because people keep pushing it over. If you've seen the, uh, the uh, food delivery robots, I think it's on the West coast that people just keep like tipping them on their side. It's kind of hilarious. Actually, the videos, um, but I digress. Um, so what, in terms of what, I guess, what, what's getting you pumped up or fired up or excited, like in terms of use cases? Cause like, you know, it's not just one or two things. There's, there's, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different ways this can be used. What, you know, when you get, when you wake up in the morning and get, what do you get fired up about possibly uh, showing somebody? So
1: when was it 2015 or so I was in uh, I was in business school at Southern Methodist University, and we were doing a IBM Watson case study competition. Uh, and my partner and I, this and, and the reason why I frame it as Watson is that was, that was the original big data focus, right? That was the start of the hype. There's probably a lot of reasons why <clears throat> it didn't accelerate that I don't know. But we were doing this case study competition, and, and my partner and I started talking around this idea of using these artificial intelligence capabilities to create personalized experiences, particularly around things like wealth management. And what we recognized is that certain fo- types of folks, particularly like in the millennial generation, were looking into how they can connect their investments uh, into just having some kind of philanthropic aim. And we also recognized that there's going to be a huge gap in financial literacy. and we thought to ourselves, well, couldn't we create a series of models where we pull people's social media rep, uh, preferences, we take in their political preferences, we can take in all of this personalized information, and we can overlay that over financial investment information and help them curate a, a, a good cause-based financial portfolio and, and bring that forward. And, and we, we put together all this approach and we presented it and and it did not land. <laughs> it did not land at all. Uh, people did not understand it. And it just—I—I I, I, want to say maybe it was a leap too far in 2015 to talk about it that way. But that is commonplace now. That everyone is talking about. That's one of the big things that generative AI can do, and a lot of these AI systems can start doing for us is start providing us more thoughtful information about our own preferences and connecting us to solutions, whether those are products whether those are opportunities, whether those are causes, uh, and, and what have you that we've never seen before. So I think the personalization boom that's going to come out of this is going to be really impressive. Uh, I do think obviously it comes back to there's being a ton of challenges for how you actually implement that. Uh, but yeah, I think personalization is, is going to be a big element to this. Um, and it's, it's something where there's, there's productivity gains that can be made, there's opportunities for differentiation, and there's opportunities for disruption and the one that i described around hyper personalization is certainly one that i think can get around the the disruption space and the reason why is it doesn't take a whole lot for a startup to get a hold of an open ai model build out an api build out some automation build out a user interface and can start doing these things and iterating iterating on these ideas really quickly and so like we saw in the in the you know in the period of like two, the late 2000s into around 2020 we saw this huge wave of startups that came up um, if we see some venture capital money start coming to back to the table around generative AI, I think we could see a lot of really interesting applications that come out. Um, now, a lot of those uh, startups are probably going to get bought up pretty quick <laughs> right. uh, by a lot of the powerhouses. But I just feel like that innovation is going to happen really quickly. Yeah, like everything is like uh, a thirty dollars app
0: stations. nowadays. Like every time you see right. a Gen yep. a, I think, hey, this thing can do this for you, but it's thirty bucks. Hey, th- and by the time you, you're filtering through the gut gar- you don't know if it's decent garbage. You know, everyone I know has a different. Gen AI, like uh, I bought Da Vinci, it was thirty bucks, you know, because yeah. I wanted to do the stupid portraits. Um, You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, uh, yeah. The other, and that, and that gets into an interesting point regarding like art. I have some friends that are creators, artists, you know, mm-hmm. musicians, filmmakers, right, comic artists, and you know, I don't think they're coming for their jobs either. But like, I, I know a lot of people are saying people are trying to pass off Gen AI art as their own. And there's a whole big thing with intellectual property and copyright and all that. And it's like, who, do you know who owns that? Like, is it, can they market, can can they, they can't market that as their own art. Can they, do they own it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, I, I have an interesting household. So my wife is a writer and um, she has a lot of creative, creative friends. I have friends who work in marketing and other creative fields as well. And, And so her and I talk about this a lot that, what does it mean? what is the functional what is the actual difference between me reading a bunch of James Baldwin myself and then writing a book that sounds eerily similar to James Baldwin but is is not is no um, but doesn't have any plagiarism versus open AI reading a bunch of James Baldwin's books and then creating a book that sounds like James Baldwin but doesn't have any plagiarism in it? And what's I think the the, the point of the challenge is is, are we okay with one scenario but not the other? Probably because of the exponential impact of allowing of, of permitting machines to be able to do this at scale and in mass. And, and I, I think that's a really interesting challenge. And one of the things that I've heard most recently, I can't remember where it was, but there actually was a, a federal, I think it was a federal court said that you can't copyright materials that come out of generative AI machines. Okay, That you can't copyright these digital creations and one I, I don't know if someone someone tipped off the someone tipped off the writers guild and sag that generative ai was launching when it did because if there was no better time for a union to want to go to the bargaining table that is in the creative space than when generative ai comes to the front of the conversation because it was so easy to explain to the american people why you need to be concerned about generative AI because you had a bunch of writers who were sitting there and being able to explain, yeah, this is what we're talking about. They're going to try and automate all of our scripts. Well, and then you have a bunch of other pieces. So it kind of comes all together. You, legally, you can't copyright it now. Maybe you can.
0: Uh, But yeah, I think there's a lot of challenges. I guess that brings an interesting point. It reminded when you were talking about you know digesting those books and coming up with something new. um, I never thought I'd bring up Weird Al today, but um, (laughs) Weird Al always did stylistic parodies, and he did a song Mm -hmm. called "Dare to Be Stupid." And he had a beef with Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo because Dare that was his interpretation of what a Devo song should be through the eyes of Weird Al. And Mark Mothersbaugh was like, mm-hmm. "I hate his guts because he he nailed the sound that I've always been looking for." So it's like, well, what's the difference between that? And you know what I'm saying? It's it's artistic mm-hmm. interpretation. It's stylistic parody. Um, it's just we got a different tool to do it today than we did 30 years ago when he wrote that song. You, you know, I you know we may never have a good answer for that one.
1: Well, it, it it kind of becomes, I think, again, where, where do we draw the acceptable line uh, between what can be created by humans and what can be created by humans, but aided by technology? So if someone sits down and writes a book with a typewriter and they've done everything, you know, maybe just by pencil, they just write it by hand with a pencil um, and they have no other references and they just built it, wrote it that way, it probably wouldn't be a great story because the truth is, is a lot of the great stories that we've read those authors have been informed by countless, countless, countless other authors that they've read, books they've, other, they've read, conversations they've had, and all those things get fused into their creative potential. The question becomes is, do we think that we should allow computers? <laughs> this is kind of a weird existential question about computers, is, and maybe Turing would appreciate this, is do we want to allow computers to have that intellectual capability and capacity? And do we think it's the same thing? And I think that also ties into like, is creativity part of the soul? Can computers have a soul? So I, I think we're start getting down this philosophical route that I would love to go, Bob, don't give me yeah, wrong. Yeah. But I, I do think that's the that's fundamental question here is can, can computers – generative AI, I think, makes people think. <laughs> generative AI gives the impression to the average user that it is thinking. That it is being creative, that it has this intellectual cap- capability and creative cap- capability that it just doesn't actually have yet, and and maybe that's part of this issue is that it's it's almost uh, it's an imposter. It's not actually creatively talented in the same way that cre- human creators are, and I think that might be where some of the some of the 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 a lot one maybe one of the, the pushback points is this is not the same thing as being a creative individual, because it's not creativity. It's just pattern and
0: sequence. So I remember 40 years ago, 35 years ago, when sampling was a thing and you had, you know, the early hip hop artists in New York taking, yeah. you know, George Clinton, craft work uh, early James Brown, and they were making their own artistic interpretation of their, you know, and it, it took, mm-hmm. What up until the mid '90s before literally sampling was considered creative art because a lot of people are saying you're just stealing yeah. other people's and they trust me it's not I'm not talking about P Diddy missing you where he just like took someone <laughs> else's song and sung you know I'm talking about like Daft Punk people that like have an inter- yeah mashups artistic interpretation of a song and speed it up chop it up you know and they use I don't maybe maybe in five years then people will assume this as as a as a you know okay art form if some people do it properly so um we've been talking serious this whole time we're gonna get wrap things up how about uh we do something fun randy what's the dumbest question you think i should ask chad gpt right now the absolute dumbest i put you on the spot i'm sorry yeah scott unless you Um, got one so i always ask it potty stuff and it yells at me what are the best date ideas in detroit what are the best what date night ideas in detroit
1: But but ask it to respond like a pirate. You just put
0: that afterwards, like yeah, drop down another
1: yeah, yeah. Provide your answer as if you were a pirate,
0: (laughs) our matey. If ye be looking for a swashbuckling date night, Detroit, here's some fine ideas to consider. Um, oh my god, it's giving me a ton. Oh, it, save these for the show notes. Those were all normal. Yeah. yeah and it says, <laughs> remember me, Hardy, the best date is where you're both being enjoying each other's company. So choose the adventure that suits your taste and make it a night to remember in the Motor City. And it's all Detroit Distillery, Belle Isle, DIA. And dine like a pirate. staver some delectable grub. F- fancy some seafood. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, (laughs) fantastic conversation, Scott. Um, you have no idea. I could literally talk to you for probably six hours on this stuff. Um, this is, this is completely fascinating. I don't know, like this is your, you know, your career has been dedicated to this. So we all kind of tip our head and thank you. So really appreciate, appreciate sharing your insight and your knowledge on this. Um, one of the better episodes we've had in a while. I appreciate it. Um, we're going to wrap things up. Scott Smith, Gen AI expert. Uh, we're going to, on behalf of, uh, Bob and Randy, do us all a favor. Drink up your drinks, get your phone numbers. You don't got to go home. You just got to get the hell out of here. See you next week. Drive careful, beat it.